It's good to be back in Dallas. I was in Atlanta last week attending a, a theological scholars meeting. And it was great because you could go from the airport to the hotel where I was staying in downtown on the rapid rail for $3. And usually it cost me $45 to take a cab from the airport to the hotel, which is a $90 round trip. So I got to go for $6. I don't really feel great about that. It was filthy, but I, you know, no, it really wasn't. You know, usually the cabs are dirtier than these rapid rails. It was really fast. It was very convenient. And it was good to be back in Atlanta because five years ago, when I went to Atlanta, I was uh, examined uh, on my uh, doc second doctoral dissertation right there in Atlanta during the same meeting. And my, my uh, examiners, one, both of the examiners had their doctor's degree from Oxford University. So I had no idea what they were talking about when they were asking me these questions. And it went on for two hours and 45 minutes. And those, those tests usually go on for an hour and 45 minutes to two hours. And when it hit the two hour mark, Lynn, Lynn was out there waiting for it, this thing to be over. And it wasn't over. And then it hit two hours and 15 minutes. And she said, uh-oh, he's having problems in there. And then two hours and 30 minutes. And my supervisor from the University of Wales was there. He wasn't in that meeting, but he was there, and he came by and he asked Lynn, well, where's Alan? She said, he's not out of the meeting. He said, oh, no, what am I going to do? <laughs> and then uh, two hours and 45 minutes, I finally came back. So, uh, it was a real experience, and so I went to that room where I was examined, and I got another shot of me standing there at the room. It's a crazy shot, but it, I thought I would do that, and I may never go back to Atlanta. So. Anyway, it was a great time, and uh, it's good to be back. So today we are going to continue, and we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. So take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John, and chapter 20. And we're going to begin at verse 24. Okay. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, you know that the Gospel writer John does not paint a positive picture of the Apostles. If you were just reading the Gospel of John and you tried to analyze what these guys were like, you would have a negative feeling about them because one betrays Jesus. And of course, it's the money guy with the money. He betrays Jesus. I wonder what he did with that money bag after he betrayed Jesus. Has anybody ever thought about that? You think he turned it over to the other apostles? I doubt it. One denies Jesus. That's not very good. They all misinterpret Jesus' teaching. They have no idea what he's talking about. It's like he's talking to a brick wall when he talks to these guys. They're so thick-headed. And most have abandoned him in his time of need when he's dying on the cross. Only one, uh, the Apostle John, stands with him. So he paints a very bad picture of the Apostles. After Jesus dies and he's raised from the dead, he makes two appearances. His first appearance is the Mary Magdalene. And when she realizes it's Jesus, she gets real emotional, and she clings to him and won't let go, and he finally has to you know, 
kick her off and say, hey, wait, hold on. I'm not leaving yet. The second appearance is to the ten, to ten apostles, and uh, they are scared to death. They are hiding behind locked doors, and when he shows up, they think they're seeing a ghost. So Mary does not expect him to be resurrected. The ten apostles are not expecting him to be resurrected. They are shocked when they see the resurrected Jesus. Okay? So now we are in verse 24, and the gospel writer gives us a footnote. Now look at verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So here's Thomas, and he misses the whole affair. Now what do we know about this guy, Thomas? A couple things. Notice in verse 24, he's called the twin. The name Thomas is, an, is from the Hebrew or the Aramaic language. That's his Hebrew name, Thomas. Twin, the word twin, is a Greek word, and it's didymus. And uh, this is probably what he was called. Hey, go get the twin. Which indicates that he has a twin brother or a twin sister. And uh, you, if any of you have ever been around identical twins, and I have, because I had a son, I have a son who is married to a twin. And anybody else know about the identical twins? Very interesting, isn't it? Watching them. You're an identical twin? Now, are you, a, are you the dominant twin, or are you the more submissive twin? I got all the looks and the intelligence. Yeah, I got the looks and the intelligence. That's what he said. So, it's very interesting because, you know, they are usually one that's real aggressive and one that's not quite as aggressive. And, uh, and when twins are separated, let me tell you, this is a very, especially identical twin, big deal. You like to be around your twin, Gary? Yeah. See, I don't want to be around my brothers. But if you're a twin, guess what? You want to be with them. And it's a special relationship that's uh, different than just having siblings. And here, this guy is a twin, and he is separated from his twin brother or sister. And he has come and followed Jesus. So this is a real commitment that he has made. Okay? So that's the first thing we know about Thomas, is that he's a twin. Now, there's something else we know about Thomas. If you just turn back to John 11, because well, John talks about Thomas in three places. And it's sort of interesting. I thought it would be at least fun to set this up in this fashion. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And you know that story. So, if you look at verse 7. John chapter 11 and verse 7. It says... Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews have sought to stone you. And are you going there again? No one wants to go there where there's danger, but look down at verse 16. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also that we may die with him. Now, you know, this guy is called the Doubting Thomas. I would call him the Courageous Thomas, wouldn't you? Everybody's saying, oh, why do you want to go? Thomas said, let's go, if he rallies the troops. I believe he's the dominant twin. I think he's a 
strong personality, and he's willing to die for Jesus. And that's sort of different than the doubting Thomas, isn't it? And then the second time he's mentioned is in chapter 14. So look over there, chapter 14. And this is where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You know, I'm going to the Father and all this kind of information. And then look what he says in verse 4. John 14, 4. And he says, and where I go, you know. And the way, you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know. Look at that. Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? So here, that's a pretty bold, isn't it? He just contradicts Jesus. This is a bold character. So now we come back to our chapter, chapter 20. So I have a lot of respect for Thomas in the sense that he is outspoken, he's courageous. So when you go to back to verse 20 in verse, uh, chapter 20 and verse 24, it says, Now Thomas called the twin, and we could just put in parentheses, the bold, the courageous one, the one who's not afraid to speak his mind, right? Look, then Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So when Jesus appeared to the twelve, and they were thought they were seeing, or the ten, and they thought they were seeing a ghost, Thomas wasn't there, and that means that Thomas missed out seeing Jesus. He wasn't there, he missed seeing Jesus. He missed hearing Jesus' words of comfort. Peace unto you. Remember when Jesus said that? Shalom alaikum. He missed out on Jesus commissioning them to go out and preach. As the Father sent me, so send I you. He didn't hear that. He missed out on Jesus breathing on the apostles and say, receive the Holy Spirit. He missed out on that experience. He missed out on Jesus saying, and whoever sin you forgive, it shall be forgiven them. He missed out on hearing that. He's missed out on this whole experience of seeing Jesus. Now, if you're like me, there have been times that you've missed events. And you regretted it. Because something was either said or done. And you weren't there. And you said, ah, I wish I there. Yeah. And you missed, as a result, you missed out on a blessing. So this was Thomas' situation, okay? So what we have here is he shows up now in verse 24. And the apostles give Thomas a report about Jesus appearing to them in verse 25. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord! And they repeat that over and over again. They're excited. And they, and they just say, We've seen it. You can't believe it. We thought it was a ghost. And and they just keep going on about seeing Jesus, and obviously they're excited. And uh, Thomas, if you were just here ten minutes ago, you would have seen him too. You came in a little late. Man, you really missed it. Okay. Uh, Jesus is alive, and they're trying to convince Thomas that Jesus is alive. So now we have Thomas's report. In the middle of verse 25, so he said, old, bold, loud, courageous Thomas, unless I see his hands in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails thus I see him and touch him and put my hand into his side I will not believe and the emphasis there is on the word not it's a double negative in the Greek language which gives it strong emphasis unless I can see him touch him put my hand into his side I will not let me tell you I'll never believe that 
That's absolute nonsense what you're just saying. So he needs to have proof that Jesus is alive, and he asks for a threefold proof. Seeing him, touching him, and putting his hand in the word there, put there, it means to thrust. It's actually the word which means to throw, like to throw a baseball. Unless I could thrust my hand into his side, give him a real punch right there in the side, I won't believe. Uh, not that he can't believe, guess what? He won't believe. So we see that this is uh, a strong-willed person. So what's happening here? They've said we've seen Jesus, and guess what Thomas said? You haven't seen Jesus. I don't believe your report. So he doesn't believe what to say. I don't think you're telling the truth. Or, guess what? You had an hallucination. Right? Uh, ten people having an hallucination. You think that's crazy? Let me tell you, every time someone sees a flying saucer, guess what? Hundreds of people see a flying saucer. The next day, and the next day, it's called a flat. Mass hallucination. He says, you, you're hallucinating. And what have you been on? Maybe it was a vision, but this... Maybe you did see a ghost, this, but it wasn't Jesus. You know, I need to feel him and touch him and so on and so forth. He just doesn't think it's real and he doesn't believe the veracity of their statement. He's not saying that they didn't see something, but he just doesn't believe it was Jesus. So what he wants is empirical evidence. It's like a scientist wants empirical evidence that there's a God before he or she will believe. So, and. And when they, they probably tell him the whole story. And then he breathed on us and he gave us a commission. And Thomas said, I'm not going to go out and preach and do something based on some crazy vision. Unless I can, you better tell it to me. I have to hear him and see him myself. So you can sort of get what's going on here, can't you? So then look what happens. One week passes. Okay? So this is on your television screen. One week later, you know, when you see it on television. This is what it is. This were a television story. It would be one week later. Look at verse 26. And after eight days, the disciples were again inside. And this time, Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and he stood in their midst. Now this is the following Sunday. Eight days have passed. It's the following Sunday, second week after the resurrection. And uh, that means that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is now over. They're still in Jerusalem, still in that room. <laughs> they haven't gone back to Galilee. They're not out preaching like Jesus told them to preach. They're not doing any of this. At this point, they're still in the room, still locked there, still afraid. And uh, Jesus comes, and, he, and Thomas is there this time. And he gives them some instructions. First, he speaks to the group. Okay, the first thing, he speaks to the group. And look what he said to them. Peace be to you. Verse, in verse 26. To you all. That's the same thing that he said the first week. And Thomas gets to hear this. Peace be to you all. And then he speaks directly to Thomas himself. Look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas. And he gives Thomas five commands. That one verse contains five commands. Look at the verbs. Reach. Look. You know. Reach. Put. Do not be unbelieving. Five commands. Look at each one of those commands. Okay. Command number one. He said, 
reach your finger here, command number one. And he probably went like this. Reach your finger here. Reach your finger there, command number one. Yeah. Look at the second command. Look. Look. First, reach. Second, look. See, there's the second command. Look at my hands. Third command. And reach your hand here. Reach your hand right there. That's the third command. Look at the fourth command. And thrust it into my side. Thrust it into my side. And then there's a fifth command, which we'll talk about in a second. Now, what's happening here? Obviously, Jesus knows every one of Thomas's objections. <laughs> How would he know that? <laughs> Thomas was there the week before, and he gave all these objections, and that Jesus knows them all, and he answers every one of Thomas's objections. So. We can say, well, Jesus was God, and that's how he knows, and that's possible. He could have been in that same room when Thomas was giving the objections, but he just didn't manifest himself so they could see that. We don't know what it is, but the point, I think, is that uh, he answers each one of Thomas's objections. He wants to remove every hurdle, every obstacle that stands in the way of Thomas believing in his resurrection. And I think this is really important because I don't think Jesus ever shirks or shrinks back from uh, proving himself to people in the sense. Uh, if you have an honest inquiry, he challenges you to go ahead with that test. Thomas says, I have to touch the fingers, the print marks. He said, here, touch the finger, touch the print marks. See, he doesn't shirk back from the challenge. He takes on the challenge, as long as it's an honest inquiry. And that's the important thing, is an honest inquiry. And then the fifth command at the end of verse 27 is this. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Or stop being an unbeliever and become a believer. And uh, Jesus is willing to meet Thomas right where he is in his spiritual journey. And that's what he's willing to do for us as well. And aren't you glad? So he says, just stop being an unbelieving person and start believing. Now, we have Thomas's surprising response. I mean, just based on that evidence, look what Thomas said. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Okay, now, when you look at that <coughs> response, my Lord and my God, First of all, you see the word my, which of course is a personal pronoun. And then uh, he's making this personal. You are my Lord and you're my God. Now, what does Lord mean? Well, if you watch Downton Abbey, you know what a Lord is. The Lord is a person who is in charge of a lot of people. Like in, in Charles and Downton Abbey, he's a, the Lord of the manor. And uh, actually, he owns a lot of property and a lot of people in the towns, even the town. I think he's in, like, in charge of the town. And, the people of the town give him a, give him their allegiance. He's their master. So when there's a war, guess what? When Charles says, oh, we're going to war, guess what? They all go to war. They obey their master. They give their allegiance to the master. So Thomas 
points Jesus out as his Lord or his master. Uh, so if Jesus says, now, as the Father sent me, so send I you, what's Thomas going to do? He's going to go. He's accepted that challenge because Jesus is his master. Now when he says, Jesus is my God, that's who you worship. Okay? So that's happening in 30 A.D. Okay? That's happening in 30 A.D. He says, you're my Lord and you're my God. Now, what does it mean? Or look at, let's look at it from the people who are reading it in 95 A.D. Because we always have to look at it from two, two perspectives, right? The event's taking place in 30 A.D. When's John writing it? 95 A.D. Now, this is very interesting. The emperor at that time was Domitian. He ruled the Roman Empire from 81 to 96 A.D. Toward the end of his reign, John's writing in 95, Domitian reigns until 96, toward the end of his reign, he requires, whenever he sent out a directive, a circular letter to everybody in the empire, each procurator, each governor of a province was responsible for getting it out to the citizens. And Domitian, Emperor Domitian, required that these words be put in front of the circular letter. This directive from our Lord and God, Domitian. So John's readers in 95, when they hear the phrase, my Lord and my God, what do they think of? They think of the emperor. For and now they he see Thomas saying that Jesus is my Lord and my God. Which in a sense is uh, basically for John's audience it says don't give your loyalty to Caesar. You know, so many of you are giving your loyalty to, the, to Caesar and you're doing his bidding. Don't do his bidding. And he's sort of making a challenging Caesar's authority, legitimate authority to rule over people. And that they should be giving their allegiance to Jesus Christ as their Lord and their God. So that's very interesting. Now look how Jesus replies in verse 29. He said, Thomas, and this is really interesting to me as I was looking through that, this passage this past week. He said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Okay? Because you've seen me, you've believed. Now, how many people have seen Jesus so far? Mary Magdalene, she saw Jesus, right? Week number one. The ten apostles, he shows up at their apartment or whatever, upper room, and they see Jesus. That's week number one. And now Thomas sees Jesus. Now, does Jesus deny that they're believers in verse 29? Does he deny they're believers? No, he says what? You are believers, right? He doesn't deny they're believers, just the opposite. He says they are believers, and that their belief is based on what? Sight. You see that? You believe what? Because you've seen me. He doesn't deny they're believers. He just says your belief is based on sight. You believe because you've seen me with your own eyes. So don't think this is a rebuke. Oftentimes we take this as a rebuke. It's not a rebuke. Okay? Uh, look, how about Saul of Tarsus? He persecuted the Jews, didn't he? I mean the Christians. But what happened? 
Jesus showed up one day on the Damascus Road and man, just like that, he was changed. He was a believer because he did what? He saw. How many Muslims have you heard about? If you're studying world religions, you know there are many Muslims today who have converted to Christianity because they said Jesus appeared to them. I used to think that was crazy. But a lot of them have become real believers and have uh, put their faith in Christ. So what we have happening here is Jesus isn't rebuking them for seeing and believing. He's just stating a fact. You believe because, look, you see me. Now look at the rest of the verse. Verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. He doesn't say more blessed, does he? No. Not more blessed, just blessed are those who have not seen, yet still believe. Who hasn't seen, yet still believe? Let's start off with John's audience in 95 AD. Have they seen Jesus? No. But they believe. How about you? you ever seen Jesus? I haven't seen Jesus. Maybe you have, but I haven't. So I'm one of these people right here. Blessed are those who have not seen Jesus and believe. Okay? Now, remember Jesus' prayer back in chapter 17? Praise for the apostles. And then he says, Father, but I don't pray for these only. I also pray for those who will believe based on their word. So we have believed based on the word being preached to us. And we're not more blessed. We're equally blessed. What this means is that the apostles don't have one wit over us. But they're not behind us either. It's not like we're more blessed. We're equally blessed. In fact, I will make a statement that everyone who believed on Jesus prior to him going up into heaven, his ascension, after he dies and he's resurrected, prior to him going up into heaven, they believed based on seeing. They saw him. That's why they believed. But once he went up to heaven, guess what? <coughs> then the people who believed on him believed on him without seeing him. And that's the rest of us. Except for one man who was born out of due season, the Apostle Paul, who says the resurrected Jesus appeared to him uh, in a special event to call him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So I don't think the apostles have anything on us. Now let me just read this verse to you. I'll read the verse and I'll tell you where I get it. It's talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom... Having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith. Faith without seeing. Receiving the end of your faith. The salvation of your soul. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 8 and 9 basically says the same thing here. That we who haven't seen believe also have salvation just as the apostles have salvation. So, now you'll notice in verses 30 and 31 that it's in black letters. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you now have black letters, right? So this is John the Apostle throwing in his two cents. Okay? And he gives us the purpose for his gospel, the gospel of John. Look what he says. And truly, Jesus did 
many other signs other than his resurrection. He did many other things other than his resurrection. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Okay? Which are not written in this book. So he says, you know, if I told you all that Jesus wrote, all that Jesus did, I'd have to, you know, extend the pages, many, many more pages. But Jesus did many other things in the sight of the apostles, and he calls those signs. You see that? And truly, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs other than the resurrection in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. But these, these are written that you might believe what's written. What's written? John gives us seven signs that Jesus performs, other than the resurrection, that he did in the sight of the disciples, for the purpose that we might believe. Who might believe? Who's John writing to? People in 95 A.D. He said, I've written, I've given you seven signs in this book, this letter called the Gospel of John, other than the resurrection, so that you in 95 AD will believe without seeing You'll just believe that testimony. Okay? What are those seven? Turn water into wine. That's the first miracle done in the sight of the apostles. Signifying a new age is coming upon us. Healing the nobleman's son. Remember that? By a word. With just a word. Not even touching. By long distance. Can you imagine such a thing? That's the second miracle. Third miracle. Healing the paralyzed man by the pool. Remember the guy who tried to get over to the pool so an angel could tickle the water? Remember that? He'd been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus healed that man. Why does John tell us about that? That we might believe Jesus fed 5,000 you know, with two fish and five loaves. <coughs> just imagine, you know, the American Airlines Center. Because that was just the men. You don't have any women and kids were there. Fill the whole American Airlines Center and feeds them all on two hot dog buns. You know? <laughs> or two hot dogs and five hot dog buns. <laughs> Walked on water. That was a fifth of these miracles. Sixth, healing the blind man. You know that story. That was the one where he healed the blind man and then the blind man turned on Jesus. <laughs> he wouldn't stand up for Jesus, neither would his parents. In the seventh miracle, he raised Lazarus from the dead after he was his body was starting to decay after three days. These seven things John records in this book that his audience in 95 AD and anybody else who reads it, including us, might believe. You want to know if somebody's the Messiah? Here's the way you can tell whether they're Messiah. Do they meet this test? Ask them to walk across Joe Poole's leg right now. Pretty high up. They wouldn't even have to step down. They just step right on up Joe Poole's leg because it's so full right now. They just walk across it. You know, without a boat, without water skis. Ask them to go out and well just bring in uh, what's that singer's name? Little Stevie Wonder. Oh, it used to be little Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. The blind singer. Healing. You see, can you heal Stevie Wonder? 
do that, maybe that person might be the Messiah. I have not seen anybody that can do that. Or how about raising Lazarus from the dead? Let's take him out to Restland. Let's stop by one of the funeral homes. See if they can raise somebody from the dead. Jesus does only what God can do. And John records these seven that his readers might believe. Believe what? Look what it says in verse 31. These are written that you might believe that, here it is, number one, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah whom the Old Testament writers spoke about. Okay. You might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who represents God, the one who reveals God on earth, his earthly representative. And, not only that, that by believing, you may have life in his name. The pastor's talking about the one way to heaven, the exclusivity of, of uh, Christianity, and that believing you might have life in his name alone. See, that's the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. So this is why the book is written, and that life there is the word zoe, which speaks of eternal life. And this is where, this is the whole purpose for John writing this gospel to his audience. He tells about those seven signs. Well, many Bible scholars think that's the end of the gospel of John right there. They believe that chapter 21 was added much, many years later. But, you know, it doesn't make sense when you read it. He's going to talk about more resurrection appearances. He's going to have to deal with this guy... Peter, who's denied him three times, he's going to have to forgive him three times. And uh, I see chapter 21 as an epilogue. Just as you had an introduction, you had a prologue of the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verses 118, that's the prologue. So chapter 21 is the epilogue of the Gospel of John. Well, what about this guy, Thomas? Do we know anything about him? Well, according to tradition, which simply means church history, word of mouth, as, we, as church history has come down through word of mouth before it was ever put in print. Thomas evidently took that commission of Jesus seriously. When he said, you're my Lord, he said, I'm going to serve you as my master. So when Jesus said, as the Father sent me out, so send I you out, according to the church history, Thomas ended up in India. And he was the one who presented the gospel of Jesus Christ to India. And today, Thomas is a patron saint of India. Catholic Church has saints, you know. Patron saint of India. That's how impressive his was. So, you know, if you have any doubts, that's no trouble. Thomas had doubts. We all have doubts. Okay? But John has written this gospel in such a way that these seven miracles, plus the resurrection, should convince you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I hope that this series so far has awakened your faith, and for those of you who have faith, has strengthened your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll pick up next week at chapter 21, The Breakfast by the Sea. Lord, I thank you for your, your word. I thank you for honest doubts. I thank you for honest inquiry. I thank you that you do not shrink back from 
meeting us right where we are in our spiritual journey. You know what we need before we even know ourselves. You know what evidence we need. You know how our faith needs to be strengthened. We've seen an example here of a man who was courageous, bold, had doubts about the veracity of a report, and you met him right where you are. And many of us can think back on our lives, and we can say the same thing. You met us where we were. You met our need. And now we believe. Thank you, Lord, for the scripture. In Christ's name, amen.